Could you tell our audience who you are? Okay. Uh, my name is Peggy McKee, and Simone is a former student of mine. Peggy McKee was my high school history teacher. I hope you got an A. I think I did pretty well in your class, yeah, if I remember. <laughs> so I'm talking with Ms. McKee because today we're revisiting a year, a whole year of making not past it. And in some ways, Ms. McKee and I have similar jobs, getting people to care about history. Her style was all about commanding the classroom. I was not, until very late in my career, a big fan of, um, oh, what's the word for it now? Um, Project-based learning. I wanted to be the sage on the stage. Sage on the stage. As in, she stood at the front of the class and just spoke. It felt like story time and a one-woman play all rolled into one. I'd plant my ass in my seat, pull out my spiral notebook, and my hand wouldn't leave the paper until the end of class. Somehow, Miss McKee got a hormonally charged group of teens to fall in love with history lectures. Oh, good. She had this way of making history seem relevant to us. Take this one project. We'd been learning about World War II, and Peggy wanted us to step into that world with a movie. Oh, that's right, the movie project. Yeah, the movie project, yes. And um, I think I was struggling to choose one, and I came to you for a suggestion. And you recommended that I watch Au Revoir Les Enfants, uh, Goodbye Children. Yes, what an amazing movie. I think it was interesting to see this history that I had been learning about in class, but from the perspective of kids that were much closer to my age. Yes, the two little boys. It was a perspective I felt much more close, you know, closer to than, um, you know, thinking about the war in the abstract. I was like, okay, confirmed, Miss McKee is a genius. Ms. McKee knew how to make events from decades, even centuries ago, feel up close, relatable. And truthfully, it was a huge inspiration for making this very podcast. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. On June 2nd, 2021, we dropped the first episodes of Not Past It, one year ago this week. Well, not quite, but pretty close. Hey, we're a history show, not a math show, okay? Today, we're looking back at some of my favorite episodes, playing some never-before-aired tape, and diving into the lessons I've learned in trying to make sense of history's tangled web. Can't promise I'll live up to Ms. McKee. I mean, few of us can. But I've got my own little nuggets of wisdom to share. Class is in session after the break, and attendance is mandatory. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Rockstar Energy Drink. Be honest, are you procrastinating by listening to this podcast? It's okay. You just need Rockstar Focus. Choose from three delicious flavors, each crafted with ingredients for an ideal energy and mental boost, like lion's mane, 200 milligrams of caffeine, and zero sugar. Visit rockstarenergy.com to learn more. At least 75 milligrams of caffeine has been shown to help improve attention. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of my main goals on this show is to make history personal, taking a story you'd never find in a textbook and showing that it has historical significance, that it can tell us about today. So when we start on a story, one of the first things I ask myself is, what do I relate to here? What's the human moment I connect to? So that's lesson one. Find something to relate to. Take the episode about Pittsburgh Pirates pitcher, Doc Ellis. Remember him? My name is Doc Phillip Ellis Jr., better known as the first militant of professional baseball. Doc found himself written into history in 1970 for pitching an especially unique no-hitter. A no-hitter is when a pitcher pitches a complete game, all nine innings, without giving up a hit. It's basically one of the greatest career achievements for a pitcher. But Doc managed to pitch this no-hitter while tripping on LSD. She said, what's wrong with you? I said, I'm high as a Georgia person. <laughs> Doc later said that he usually pitched games while high on some kind of substance. He said it was because the pressure of the major leagues was overwhelming. Major League Baseball, not so relatable. But pressure? Drugs? Oh, we are intimately acquainted. We ended up cutting this next clip out. The episode was just too long. But in an early draft, I shared a story of my own early experimentation with drugs. Listen, I have no plans to run for president. What have I got to lose? Let's roll a clip. Okay, I'll tell you the story. But before I do, a disclaimer for two specific people. Mom, dad... Feel free to turn the podcast off anytime between now or now or even now. All right. So I was a junior in high school, around 16, just totally burnt out on SATs and college prep. I was basically looking for any opportunity to stop using my brain and just leave my body. Drugs were a big no in my house. You know, you'll fry your brain, you'll ruin your life. Very much that. So I was like, cool, bet. I will only do drugs in secret. My friends and I spent like weeks trying to cop. We didn't know what we were doing. We were the kind of suburban kids who pestered adults outside of convenience stores to please buy us a handle of Malibu or whatever. But then 
One day, we heard that this one girl's boyfriend knew a guy who knew a guy who knew how to get us some weed. Perfect. I told my mom I was sleeping over at my friend's house, the old classic move, and we headed straight for this guy's house. When we showed up, he was telling us all about how you can tell we got the good stuff because of the little red threads and whatnot. And he was like, you know what? Since it's your first time, I think the best way to do this is to go out and hotbox the car. So five of us piled into this little sedan and I smoked my first weed. It was underwhelming. I just ended up eating a bunch of wheat thins. We ended up cutting this, but the exercise was helpful. It encouraged me to keep attuned to these opportunities for empathy, for connection, and to start approaching stories of the past from a much more intimate place. And that led me to this other story, another moment when the past felt personal. And it touched on, I'd argue, a deeply important, truly fundamental piece of history. Everyone's talking about the Paris Hilton sex tape. That's what really people are talking about right now. I have seen it. You did. What'd you do? You, you went no, on the internet? No, it, it was just, yeah, just... How did you see it. that? <laughs> what did you do? Melania showed it to me. She actually. did. Paris Hilton did a porno film and... Oh, her poor parents. <gasps> Can you imagine how they must have felt that she did a porno film in a Marriott hotel? I mean, it is just... The sex tape One Night in Paris, featuring Paris Hilton and her then-boyfriend Rick Solomon, was released commercially on June 15, 2004, by an adult film distributor. Some accused Paris of leaking the tape herself for publicity. She's denied it to this day, and she said its release was traumatic. She sued an internet company for $30 million for illegally obtaining and distributing the video. Her suit was unsuccessful. I was a tween at the time all that was happening, seeing news anchors and TV personalities shame this young woman for being sexual, breaking her down for sport. The frenzy centered on Paris, but the coverage communicated something about the value of all women. I didn't understand why, but I knew that what they were saying made me feel bad about myself, my own body, my own sexuality, feelings I drew on to make this episode. And I realized the deeper I got into my experience of this time, the more I was able to draw out universal themes. Themes around shame, abuse, power, our long history of devaluing and discarding young women. And that's my big takeaway. Personal stories help tell universal ones. Oh darn, there's the bell. Well, class, it seems we need to take a break. When we come back, I want butts in seats, pencils in hand. We've got more lessons to learn. Welcome back, class, to Lessons I've Learned After One Year of Making a History Podcast, the world's most specific TED Talk. There's a second big lesson I learned this year as I worked my way through the past. If lesson one was to find a common thread to relate to, lesson two, find the people to connect with. Some of my favorite interactions are when I get to really nerd out with folks on really niche things. One of the most memorable examples was my chat with Dr. Robin Means Coleman. We dove into the Black Horror Cinema canon, 
focusing on the 1992 cult classic, Candyman. Dr. Coleman is a communications professor at Northwestern University. And, I might add, she is also an avid Candyman fan. Here's a moment from our conversation that didn't make it in the episode. Well, we can start off with a, a bit of a fun question. Uh, will you say Candyman five times with me? <laughs> Shall we do it? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Ready? <laughs> Yes. All right. Candyman. 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 That was a dirty trick. Oh man, I walked right into that one. Wow. Well, pray for me. We'll see. Candyman hasn't come for me yet. Thankfully, my angels have been working overtime. But I'm still keeping an eye out for Selena, if you will. I loved talking with Dr. Coleman. Her enthusiasm got me excited. And I realized it's all about finding the right person to take you into the rabbit hole. That helped a lot when we got into stories that were especially dense. And few stories are more dense with detail than the downfall of Enron. Enron was one of the biggest energy companies in the U.S. until it collapsed after its shady accounting was revealed in 2001. I got to connect with someone from the center of the story. That someone was Sharon Watkins. For better or worse, I'm known as the Enron whistleblower. Uh, so it's been 20 years since Enron collapsed and, and 20 years since I've had that label. But... Um, I've been really going around the globe, speaking on leadership, ethics, leadership failures, signs of, of a culture that might be going rotten. Sharon was a vice president at Enron when, back in 2001, she stumbled on massive internal accounting irregularities. She eventually testified about what she found to Congress. I was highly alarmed by the information I was receiving. My understanding as an accountant is that a company could never use its own stock to generate a gain or avoid a loss on its Talking with state. Sharon helped reframe this huge story of white-collar crime and failure of corporate ethics into a personal story. And I wanted to share with you some pieces of my conversation with Sharon that we cut for time. I asked her why she chose to speak up and Sharon brought me back to her childhood, small-town life in Tomball, Texas, where people kept an eye on each other. I mean, it's the silliest story, but I wanted my mother to buy ice cream sandwiches at the store. And I was little, you know, and she just, no, no, you know, we don't have ice cream sandwich money. You know, it's not going to happen. And I took one out of the box from the freezer compartment, ate a couple bites, and stuck it back. And a neighbor saw me do that, you know, told my mother, which means she had to buy the box. You know, it was an embarrassing thing that, you know, I was old enough to know you shouldn't have done that, you know, but still, still young. And that sickening feeling of doing something wrong and then getting caught, it stuck. So, you know, are we really more ethical than others or 
did we just learn early on that we don't like how uncomfortable it feels to do something wrong? Sharon showed me how a person's own history can shape their decisions and in turn, shape our world. She showed me that big moments in history aren't divorced from the smaller moments that make up our lives. They're intertwined. There was one time when I felt my own life intersect with a historic moment. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We were putting together an episode for the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I had a hard time reconciling the tragedy of the lives lost that day with my own feelings about the intense Islamophobia and xenophobia that ripped through the U.S. So I went back to that lesson, find people to connect with, and I reached out to Dr. Jacob Hom. He's director of the Center for Child Trauma and Resilience at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and a clinical psychologist. I talked with him about how jarring it was to feel like I wasn't having the correct response to 9-11. Any patriotism I could have mustered was so far outweighed by the disgust I felt at the growing xenophobia. I was afraid for all my family who had immigrated to the U.S., for my parents. When I talked to Dr. Hom, these feelings were still painfully fresh. I was pretty quick to start crying. I'm upset. I'm, a, I'm upset that America doesn't love my parents as much as I love them, I guess, <laughs> in a way. Which feels, you know, saying it out loud, it feels a little naive to say that. But, like, I was upset. I was upset by that. And so to then feel like I'm being called to unite, as sort of hard and scary as it is to say, like, there's a part of me that's like, no, fuck you. Like, I don't want to unite. <laughs> And so I think this call, this call for unity, I think that's why it feels like such a slap in the face. I didn't get it either. Maybe it is because I'm an immigrant too. And I grew up always feeling like this is, like I'm not welcomed here. That's really obvious. And so I think your anger is actually an incredibly wise and important part of your response. It has a pulse on a reality and a truth that's more important. And maybe that's what your anger is saying, like don't let this one event crowd out all the other things that you and your family have been through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Like there's a, it feels like there's some kind of erasure embedded within never forget, ironically enough. It didn't include us. It yeah. honestly didn't include us. I, I honestly feel the same way you do. Exactly the same way. Dr. Hom told me that hearing about one group's pain, the victims of 9-11 and their families, didn't invalidate my own. And that alone gave me the space to feel my feelings, my real, honest feelings, so I could better share the truth of my experience. And y'all responded. I got so many texts, emails, tweets, DMs across social media from so many of you. Some of you shared that you related, that you had felt a lot of the same things but never felt comfortable expressing them. Some of you wrote from abroad, saying you appreciated hearing this kind of perspective coming out of the U.S. Some of you even shared that the episode prompted conversation between you and members of the military in your family. 
here I was, sharing my tears and pain, and there you were, meeting me with your own stories, your own openness. It made me feel connected to you. So thank you, truly. And this brings me to my big takeaway. History is a mess. It's a tangle of facts and events and perspectives. Our job is to make meaning of it. Or, as my teacher Peggy McKee says, untangle its significance. The event may be finite, but its significance is not. It's not a straight line. It's not A to B equals C, but it's a circuitous line. But that's what history is. The stream doesn't run straight. It runs all around. Trying to make sense of history can sometimes feel like when you're trying to untangle your jewelry. Like when you have a really bad jumble of necklaces and you're painstakingly trying to separate each finicky little chain. I know that with history, I'll never unravel it all. But today, I can understand the world a little more than I did yesterday. And that works for me. So join me next season, and let's untangle it together. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. Next week, we're looking back at a hundred-year-old battle over what to teach in public schools. When you create that false equivalency, that you're either for us or you're against us, right? It's either the Bible or science. You know, that tends to bring people together. And on this very special Not Past It, I got to make some very special shout-outs. This episode was produced by Nick Del Rose. He hustled to make this episode deadline king. The rest of our team is producer Sarah Craig, our resident environmentalist and animal lover. Our associate producers are Julie Carley, master of jokes, stuns with the puns, and Ramoy Phillip with his velvety voice and passion for the WNBA. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant slash fountain of fun and fresh ideas. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. She keeps our train running and the Bravo reference is coming. And thank you to all the folks who've helped us make this show over the last year. Jake Maya Arlo, Matthew Boll, Tom Carroll, Kinsey Clark, Katie Feather, Bobby Lord, Amy Padula, and Maura Waltz. Editing by Annie Gilbertson, Zach Stewart-Pontier, and Andrea B. Scott. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Castellea School and to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, why don't you rate the show five stars? Come on, don't be shy. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. 
Well, what do you remember of me as a student? What I was like as a you student. You know what I remember most about you? What's Was that? the musical. Oh, yeah. You were amazing. Was that Kiss Me, Kate? Yeah. You were fantastic. Oh, man. I remember that you were a good student, and you were in a class of good students also. But you were incandescent on the stage. Wow. Wow. I was not expecting that. Thank you. <laughs> and do you still sing? I don't. Well, in private. <laughs> I sing plenty around my house. <laughs> 